name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Arguably, the fastest developing branch of saltwater fishing at the moment, which is 2014, is the use of soft lures, both weighted and lead-free. A field in which innovation is rife and where both the species and the specimen list grow almost by the day, for which reason I'm about to link up with Alex MacDonald of Sakuma Sea Fishing Tackle, who now manufacture the world-famous Regul brand, the one that kick-started the whole soft lure concept. Reading the press, with all the current talk of shads, jellies and the rest, you could be forgiven for thinking that the use of soft lures, either weighted or worked clear of the bottom, is a relatively new technique. But it's not. It's actually an innovation of the 1950s, which came to full prominence during the late 60s and early 70s. A bit before your time, I know, but I remember it all very well. I have to say a big thanks here to a gentleman called Bob Alexander, because my sort of knowledge of the history of Red Gear wasn't what you could call extensive, even though we bought the brand probably about seven or eight years ago now. There was a lot of files and everything when we bought it, but they were in a lot of disarray. And as I was working in our other unit at Exeter at the time and all the files were kept up in Weymouth, I never really did any more than sort of gloss through them a little bit. As much as I found quite a lot of it interesting, it was a bit of a mess to say the least and it took a long time to go through. So as I said, this gentleman, Bob Alexander, who used these lures you know, right back when they very first started, he took all the files away and put them into some sort of order and scanned a lot of the images of the original designs and paintings etc and sent them to me he's in the process of building a website at the moment and i think the full history will be on that but basically yeah thanks to him i can tell you that it was um alex ingram who designed them originally he was from liverpool he was in the army and he got discharged he had something wrong with his leg and he moved down to cornwall and um yeah in the 50s basically he was fed up i think with the primitive sort of lures that were available to the anglers and also you know, when sand deals were scarce and the boats couldn't get out and net them, they were a little bit stuck. So he got interested in it and read up on it, and then he came up with the original design in uh, in October 1959, and it was actually known then as a Mevagissi eel. It wasn't called a red gill, and he registered that at the painted office, and that was the very first artificial sand eel that was on the market. And uh, he went on from that design. He, he was actually in partnership with a couple of other people to begin with, I think the partnership was called H. Jones and C.J. Veal. It was called Ingram's Mervagissi Bates Limited. That split up after two or three years. I don't know the reason why, but I think as is the case, usually I think uh, Alex sold part of the business off and then had to wait for two or three years before he could go back into the trade. And he started up Red Gill then. And uh, yeah, the rest of the say is, uh, is history, really. The tail design changed significantly when he was on his own to start with it was more sort of like a whip sort of tail if you know what i mean it had no real paddle or any type thing on it it was just a very basic tail as would mimic a sand eel but the first red gill he came up with the uh, the actual design which was more of a sort of paddle tail to create that more disturbance and uh, he went on from there and everything sort of moved on from that original red gill design he came up with a couple of different sizes he also came up with a couple of different lures. I mean, we've still got the moulds of some of them. There's like an artificial lugworm and an artificial squid. I mean, uh, I don't think in this day and age, the way the lure fishing has progressed, that uh, there would be a massive market for them. But nevertheless, we still have, we still have the moulds, so you never know. And also what we call a pilchard now. They used to call it a reefer. Actually, I'll be honest with you, when we first purchased the brand and we saw the pilchards, I didn't realise at the time they actually had reintroduced the reefer but called it a pilchard. I thought it was just a new lure that they'd come up with. I didn't realise the history went right back to the 60s. They did it in two sizes, a, a small 70mm one called a minnow and then 
the larger six inch size which was called the reefer but really it was the sandy or the three different sizes i mean they did them um, i think the 17 mil come on at a later date which is the small one which is still very popular now we sell a lot overseas but it was the 115 size which i believe is a rascal and a 178 which is the raver they're the two most popular sizes i would say and they're still going really strong to this day so that's kind of the history on the front of alex ingram and how he came to design them so i suppose that covers that side of it really up until well i say we bought the company about eight years ago off his sons see alex ingram passed away a while before that and his sons were running the business i think they're more interested in fishing and, and other sort of ventures really and uh, the opportunity came up i mean well since i've been working in the trade red gills are very popular especially well 16 odd years ago when i first started they were very very popular because there wasn't much else available then um really uh, there was obviously a lot of copies of red gills that would come out you know different ones and such but uh, it was really the um the internally weighted lures that changed things a little bit and uh, I noticed when they came onto the market, um, the sales on the red gills slowly, slightly started to decrease in the UK anyway. I think red gills sort of got left behind a little bit, really, maybe then, and, and possibly that's why the opportunity came up to buy it, really, because the work needed to obviously keep a lure brand going these days is uh, you've got to be on the ball a little bit and, and look at other markets, not just your own, but also other different styles and see what's happening like and keep up with the times and... Uh, and it really was quite literally a cottage industry carried out from a garden shed. <laughs> it was, yeah. I was, I was amazed. I went down one day to have a look at it all. We had to hire a crane. I mean, <laughs> I kid you not, it was run from two or three garden sheds and a stone outhouse sort of building that had the uh, the plastic moulding machine in it. And there was a an old lady in one of the sheds, and he was um, he was dotting the eyes and packaging them all up. And there was a gentleman called Chaz I think he was a nice old boy and he was in this sort of stone outbuilding and there was just broken bits of machine there was one working machine in there but it was just it's like stepping back in time you know you had to go down these steps to this bottom of this very steep garden and literally there were six foot high nettles all around you on the paths and these little sheds buried away in all these nettles and um oh it's unbelievable really there was just boxes and boxes of old red gills and as I said the files and that were all there and it just looked like it hadn't changed for centuries really I, I don't know if that's true or not but that's what it definitely looked like it was nice in a way to see something still going like that but maybe a little bit sad because you know you think of I knew the Red Gill brand even before I started in the trade I'd heard of it like and it was literally yeah like you say cottage industry it was more like history <laughs> but yeah it was quite something to actually see it all really like that we had to hire a crane out to lift the machine out from this outbuilding down there because the steps were so steep there's no other way so we had to hire a flatbed truck and then yeah crane the machine out and then bring it back to our uh, our unit in Exeter at the time and uh, yeah Chas actually you know the guy who was doing it he'd come up and he was travelling up from Cornwall two days a week just to you know show the guys how to work them carry on working the machine and things like that as well so yeah that's the story with (laughs) with getting the stuff from there yeah now I was going to say coincidentally but with hindsight it may well have been in part because of but the appearance of the Red Gill coincided with one of the greatest episodes in offshore wreck fishing ever known. A time when monster hauls of lure caught Pollock, Coalfish and Cod, records included, were coming into ports like Plymouth and Brixham on an almost daily basis. Yeah, definitely. I think it just happened at that time where they were going out and with Decker and all the rest of it, they were managing to plot these wrecks and the boats could go further and further out and people were starting to realise what phenomenal fishing they could get on the wrecks and a lot of time it was perks and baited feathers and that sort of stuff. There wasn't really a, 
purpose made lure for drifting over the top of the Rex target in the Pollock and things like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, he came up with the one that was actually a bigger size. It was at the time, it was ten and a half inches, I think. They used to call it a Wrecker. These days we call it a Thresher. And that was purposely made for targeting the big pollock and big coalfish they used to get a lot more than you do see these days. They're quite a rarity, but back then there was there was a lot more about. And really, it sort of revolutionised wreck fishing because up until that day, I think a lot of the fishing was done, as I said, on either at anchor or drifting big fish baits and things over the top. And obviously an artificial lure, you know, you didn't have to worry about fresh bait and that all the time. That whole style of fishing artificial baits on long flowing traces, so, you know, drift while drifting over a wreck, I'd say... The two just went together, and it, it did. It revolutionised the way that people fished, and, and phenomenal catches were caught. You're actually right, you know, back then, there were heady days of that sort of fishing. A lot of people did very, very well out of it and enjoyed some phenomenal sport. And Not even going back that long, even up to 20 years ago, there was big, big catches, and I think then the commercial pressure took hold, and these days you still can get phenomenal catches, but I don't think like it was back then, or consistent anyway. Hmm, I remember it well. Incredible days, the likes of which we thought at the time would never end. Yeah, I've seen the pictures myself. I mean, they look a bit barbaric now when you look back because the boats back then were quite big as well, weren't they? They were some of the boats they used to fish in were more like little trawlers, really, than they were these sort of little smart sort of speedy boats you've got these days. And you used to see the whole deck just filled with fish and it was just, just crazy, really. I've experienced very good days on the boats, but never quite seen that amount of fish on a deck before between that amount of people. And it wasn't just the pollock and the coalfish. It was big ling and eels as well, weren't they, when they were anchored down? It was just... Don't forget the cod. Cod as well, of course, yeah. The cod record fell to a red gill fish from our unity. Did it? Yeah, that, I'm right in thinking our unity, was it the Brixham boat? It was John Truston only passed more from Brixham. Now, to some extent, this question has already been answered, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. For the sake of anglers coming onto the scene more recently, just how good and innovative were and obviously still are these lures? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was groundbreaking, really. You think about it back then, what else was there? There wasn't anything, was there? I mean, feathers were used. There was things like toby lures and stuff like that. It wasn't just the wreck fishing either. It was the inshore fishermen, you know, the shore fishermen as well, because the choice they had was very minimal. You know, like I say, metal lures such as the tobies. I think there was probably some wooden plugs. I don't know if Rapala had the J, but they probably didn't then, but I'm sure there were some other sort of maybe plug-type lures that were available. But on the whole, there wasn't really anything... As durable as a red gill. As I said, it was wrecking, inshore fishing, drifting in the estuaries, the shore angles would use them in the estuary mouths. They just changed a lot. I expect live bait was probably used more than anything else back then, but it wasn't always easy to get, you know, whether it was out of season or the weather wasn't right. Sandhill season doesn't really... It runs through the key months, but you still get very good fish outside those months, and if you haven't got the bait... Yeah, they mimicked a sand eel, which is one of the main food fish fish to date on, really, inshore and also offshore as well, to a certain extent. So um, you've only got to look and see how many copies of the lure is out there on the market, and that tells its own story, I think, how successful they were. It's not just UK either. I mean, we, we export an awful lot of lures, especially to Europe, but also to the States as well, the northeast of America. They use them as teasers over there, fished in front of a plug for the striped bass fishing, and they do exceptional well. And... The other thing with the lures was they were made out of tough plastic. They withstood big catches of fish. You would have to change the hooks from time to time, but I know anglers and that have still got some of the, the earlier red gills still in their box. It was groundbreaking, really, and, um, yeah, it's an honour, really, to sort of carry that on in a way. So we've talked about the lures themselves and the history, but what about the process of selecting the right one for the job and actually using it? 
There's lots of different ways you can fish a redgill, but they work best on a long flowing trace, basically, so they, they act as naturally as possible. I think that's the key to them. With any sort of lure fish, I think you're trying to get the lure to act like the bait fish that they're imitating. So flying collar rigs were something that came around, I presume, at a similar sort of time as those big catches were being made. There's Portland rigs and things like that now, but I still think, um, yeah, it's just a way of presenting a long flowing trace without it tangling. I like the booms, the nylon running booms that you thread your line through the middle of. I think they're one of the best you can make them yourself. You can buy them readily made, but you can buy the tubing and you can make them yourself to whatever length you want. You basically put your weight on one end where it's curved and then uh, the long end goes down to a swivel, a bead and then a swivel, and then you have your long trace. Some people put a swivel in the middle of the trace. I personally don't, but some people do. But then you just vary the length of the trace as long as possible, but obviously bear in mind the people around you and what the tide's doing. And if you get entangled, you might want to shorten it a little bit. Um, sometimes if you want to fish for cod and you fish closer to the bottom, you'll shorten the trace down. And It's more used with these internally weighted lures these days, so you're sort of hopping it along the bottom, really. But for most cases, for pollock bass, things like that, sort of 10, 12 foot traces, something like that. Some people go quite light. I mean, I've, I've not found a need to on the wrecks, maybe for the bass in the shallower water on the wrecks, but on the deep water wrecks in the channel, I tend to find 40 pound trace, something like that is perfectly fine. You can go lower, but why risk the chance of losing a fish? So that's the method. The Portland rig, I think, is basically you have the lead on the clip on the bottom of the line and um, your swivel and your beads, they run on the actual main line. You obviously have to use a leader. You don't want to use too light a leader because fish can smash you up doing that. Some people use the flying collar, but instead of using the nylon booms, they use a, uh, what you call a French boom, you know, which is a metal wire boom. So there's lots of different ways, but uh, that's for the wrecking side of it. Off the shore and in the inshore fishing, there's so many different sorts of methods. You see sometimes people, they, they call it whiffing, which is like quite an old school method, I believe, and they use bamboo canes. The side of the boat, they troll a team of small red gills to imitate a shoal of sand eels, and they catch whale doing that, but that's quite a specialist sort of method, and I think one that's probably dying out a little bit now, but people would troll them behind a boat with like a little drill bullet, uh, fish them in an estuary mouth underneath a bubble float or a candle. A candle's very good if you pull the wick out of a candle, and use that as a control, it floats, and it adds that weight to cast to and just let it come round in the tide the new versions like the evos and that they're internally weighted you can literally just cast them out and fish them just like a normal lure really let them come round in the tide if you're fishing in an estuary or just reel them at a, you know varying different paces until you get it right that is the beauty of the internally weighted lures they've changed things a lot ways you will still catch very very well on a normal standard unweighted regular in certain situations and um, you know up here in the portland race a lot of the commercials will use them because they don't want a weighted lure because it, it's shallow water fishing and, and mixed to rough ground and the lures, if they're weighted, they'll snag up. So they still fish the original red gills and as I said, we still sell a lot abroad as well. A lot of fishermen in Portugal, Spain, Europe, Turkey, places like that use the originals. And, and, but in the UK, I would say definitely the internally weighted soft baits have started to take out, especially on the wreck fishing side of it. There's a lot of new modern stuff that's happening with the uh, shore bass fishing, you know, and that's getting very popular now and there's lots of different techniques and methods and styles of fishing weightless, more or less, well not weightless, you know, lures that have got little weight and they add different sorts of bullet weights to the fronts of them and things like that really and you can fish them weedless and, you know, it's just evolving all the time, it's quite interesting. But for wreck fishing, the internally weighted lures have, I think, they have sort of taken over and away from the unweighted lures, but there is still a place for it. So, But yeah, in colours, black was one of the best-selling colours. I remember 16 years ago, so when I started in the business, and we used to sell lots and lots of red gills, and the most popular colours back then were like black, 
the wine red colour. It was very, very popular. I used to call it dark red, but it is like a wine sort of colour. But these days, yeah, you know, the brighter colours seem to be more popular. I think quite often they catch the angler rather than the fish. Is, um, you know, you look at them, they just look nice, and some of them look very similar to the like mackerel patterns, and they look very similar to the bait fish. But, I mean, there's just such a massive array now, it's just take your chance. I mean, uh, years and years ago, the chap I know called Steve Souter does a lot of match fishing, boat match fishing, and he worked with the Red Gill Brown, and the Ingram still had it, and I think it was the Afterburners, which was the black bodies with the, with the brighter tails. I think it was partly his idea back then, but he told me about pink lures, and they were very successful. I think it was up in the northeast of Scotland for pollock fishing. And I got some samples done, and I just put them in the back of my box, really. I never really thought about too much, and uh, I took them out and used them, and they worked phenomenally well, really, really well. And I, I tested them several different times, and they, they worked really well all the time. It's probably about fish most of the other colours, and as a consequence, the bubblegum pink has become one of our best sellers in the Evos for quite a few years now. So um, there is something in it in colours. I, I don't know. I mean, you, we have this discussion all the time when you're out on the boat. What do they see down there? I think the conclusion is they don't see what we see, that's for sure. That's right. Water progressively filters out the various wavelengths of light, starting with red, which appears black beyond 10 metres in depth. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's like all animals, you know. I don't know what dogs and cats and things like that, they don't see the same as what we do, the same colour spectrums, and uh, the fish don't either, so I don't know, but... As I understand it, most fish other than sharks and rays have colour vision. It's just that what we as anglers see is not necessarily the same as what the fish see which is equally true when divers also go down there. They do, do they? Uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they had, but I don't know what colours they see. As you get deeper, most coloration in filtered light becomes some shade of blue or green. What's probably more important is the way certain colours contrast either against the surroundings or the surface, which will differ on a day-to-day -day basis with wave action and ambient light. It's an interesting one. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line for is, is no one will ever know what the fish see, but sometimes a, a colour will work a lot better than another colour, and then another day it will be the other way round. But some colours do have that sort of, um, again, the popular colour, the more people use it. So it looks like more fish are getting caught on it, but it's obvious that they are because more people are using it, you know? So it really is one of those. I mean, it's, I love playing around with different colours and, and, and trying different ones and seeing if you can come up with something that works really well. But, um, you know, the other thing is it's anglers, they, it's their hobby, isn't it? They like trying different things as well, you know. it become a little bit boring if every time you went out you just stuck on a black red gill and that was all you used. I think you'd probably catch just as many over the course of the time if you did do that, but I think people like to try different things and there's no doubt on certain days certain species will definitely go for one colour opposed to the next. Not out and out, I'm not saying the next person to you on a different colour won't catch, but you will outfish maybe the other people on the boat by using one single colour, but then most anglers, being good anglers, will, will then switch to that colour as well. But it can also be where you're positioned on the boat when you drift in the wreck, you could be just hitting the sweet spot every time, and that's why you're catching more fish, and you think it's down to the colour, but it might have nothing to do with the fact of the colour, it's just that on the drift that you're getting right over the bit on the wreck where the fish are sitting, so... There's lots of different things and I don't really know the answer to it. But there is key colours. I think black isn't as popular these days, but in its day it was very, very popular. I mean, I know that just from our sales. Our most popular colours are, as I touched on, the bubblegum pink for the wrecking. Even though I've got a couple of friends that have done very, very well for it in the estuaries. Off the shore for the bass recently, you wouldn't think of it. But at night as well, yeah, pitch black, bubblegum pink evos in the, in the estuary mouths. And they've had lots of bass between six and nine pound doing that. 
Silver Pearl, again, yeah, that's a classic colour. It's a lot of it. That is the base of what a lot of our other colours are, you know, is the Silver Pearl, and the Silver Pearl on its own is still a top, top seller. Um, uh, white, as well as a base colour, is very popular. Um, white with a blue back, that's probably our sort of second or third best seller, maybe behind the Silver Pearl and the Bubblegum Pink. White with a red head, which is an old plug colour. You used to see a lot of plugs and perks that were white with red heads, but I've never seen a plastic lure with it, so we've we done that one, and that's proven to be popular again. And the oranges as well um, are also good, especially for the cod. I've heard people say that it's similar to brittle stars, and that's why they go for it, because quite often cod are full of brittle stars, which are an orangey sort of colour. Again, I, I don't know what reason it is, but they do. Orange or an orange base is definitely a popular one. The rhubarb and custard as well was another one that come along and um, did very, very well on the wrecks down here as well as for the cod and, and also for the pollock. So I think the best advice I can give, and I'm not just saying this because we sell lures, is keep a decent selection of lures and if something ain't working then don't be afraid to try something else. It might just pay off. Size is another factor. In my experience, the biggest fish don't always go for the biggest lures. Not at all, not at all. There is that saying, you know, big bait, big fish. I mean, there is some truth in that matter, but I've seen some very big fish get caught on some relatively small lures, and it's a bit like the fly fishermen say, you know, match the hatch. Look what the fish are coughing up. Especially pollock, they'll cough up a lot of fish, quite often still alive, where they've been gorging themselves, and you look at the size of them, and most of them are sprat, sardine, things like that, and they're never that big. So, yeah, don't be afraid to go small. The only thing you've got to be careful of when dropping your lures down in size is be careful because generally the hook strengths drop as well. And obviously you're talking about some quite big fish you can hook out there. So just be a bit careful with them if you're using a smaller lure. Don't give them the same amount of stick as what you might do if you're using the bigger lures because as I said, the hook sizes are relative and so is the wire thickness. So the smaller lures haven't got as strong hooks in as the bigger ones. And I've seen quite a few people go to lift a fish over or something like that and the hook straighten out. So yeah, just be a bit careful. Net the fish rather than trying to flip them over the gunnels. And again, don't be afraid to go big. You know, if you want a big, big cod or something like that, fish a big lure down there, be a bit more selective. You know, be amazed actually how big a lure small fish will get in their gobs, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, you know, you can use it the other way around as well. The Red Gill brand is now an integral part of a Sakuma Sea Fishing Tackle portfolio and soft lure fishing has never been more popular. I suppose the drawback now is with so many other manufacturers jumping on the bandwagon, research and development are now a key component in trying to stay ahead of the game. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of stuff out there that's getting more and more popular and it's going to continue to do so. It's flattering in some ways, but when your lures and that do get copied, I mean, there is only so many different lures on the market, but there's different ways of tweaking them around, trying to find different edges, trying different colours, testing them yourself, trying to find out what works. It's not always successful, but then when it is... It's very, very satisfying, a lot more satisfying, I think, than just sending some load of stuff off to a factory in China and just say, copy that, which is, it does happen a lot. Yeah, personally, I always try and think and take ideas from different lures and that that are successful, not just in this country, but around the world, and see how you can come up with something that is a little bit different and, you know, might just be that next little edge that the anglers want. Um, I do a lot of fishing myself. I mean, shore fishing's my thing, really, but I do like going out on the boats, and, I, you know, I make no bones about it. I, I go out on a commercial rod and line boat, so I've got friends that fish on these boats that I've known for a long time, and if you're going out with these guys, it's their living, so you can test your lures properly, because, you know, you can't go out on a boat and just go out there and not, not catch anything, you know, you soon get fed up with that, and you, you wouldn't be able to go out with them anymore, so, you know, that's why I test the lures there, because if they're working and they're out fishing those guys, or fishing as well as them, I know you're onto a good thing, so that's why I do all my testing, and Obviously these guys help me test them out as well and they tell me little bits and from the shore side of it it's a market that we're looking into going into a bit more and again I'm not a big 
like a lure fisherman I fish for bass off the shore but mostly with bait but a lot of my friends are very much into the lure side of it and they're the ones that I speak to they give me all the different samples of lures they've got from all over the world and say these are really good and they're good and that's where you sort of like mesh them all up and you get all the bits done and then you come up with something and then they'll test it for you and they'll say well this needs to be tweaked or that needs to be tweaked so you do that and there's a lot of to and fro in and and you've got to look at the colours that you want to do and then narrow that down and then test. So everything's got to be thoroughly tested. Everything's got to be just right. And then, you know, you've got to get the packaging, the marketing, all the rest of it right as well, you know. So it's it's quite a process. And as I said, sometimes it will come off and everything will be great. Other times it doesn't. But I'd rather go through all that process and come up with something new and something a little bit different. So, yeah, that that's how I deal about doing it. I enjoy it as well. You know, obviously I get to go out and test lures and things like that as well, which is great. And I do enjoy the banter and that and going out on the boat. And it's great fun. And uh, I'm doing a lot of shore fishing, you know, especially the specimen sort of side of the shore fishing. Sometimes you put a lot of time and effort in to catch the fish. You know, when you go out on the boats, <laughs> you just ridiculously, just not all the time, but a lot of the time you catch a lot of fish and it's great sport, really. It makes it all seem quite easy, really. But yeah, that, that's how I go about the development and the testing side of it, yeah. Any exciting new innovations in the pipeline? I've got three I'm working on for this year. I always like to have two or three every year that I'm doing. Some of them won't always make it to the end, but others will, you know. And this year I'm working on a a weedless lure for the shore bass fishing. A couple of the guys have been, one chap in particular, a gentleman called Bill Fagg. He's come up with this one lure and it's based around our Evo lures. He's been doing ever so well on that one up along the Dorset coast and a lot of people have sort of cottoned onto this. So that's our one and that's our first lure that we've developed really for the sort of shore bass market, even though it would work on the inshore and even on the wrecks really because it's very similar really to a jelly worm, I suppose, and you could fish it as like. We've got another internally weighted lure. That's an interesting one. That was developed with another friend of mine, Aaron, and his mate, Carl Turnstall. And they basically give me all these different lures that they've been buying again from all over the place. And so we want this bit like that and this bit like that and... I had this lure from Japan on my desk that had a really nice tail on it, so I thought I wanted that on it, and we've come up with this version, and um, yeah, I mean, that looks, I'd, I'd, to be honest with you, I'm absolutely gutted, because I've been wanting to go out, I've had these lures now for about a month, and I just haven't been able to get out and test them, because they wanted them for sure, bass fishing, but I'm looking at them and just thinking these will absolutely kill on the wrecks with the pollock and the cod. Sometimes you get that, and they just look at them, and you think, yeah, that's got to work, and I'm not saying it definitely will, but I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get out, and I'm looking at one maybe for the Norway market as well, a bigger version of one of the lures we've already got out there at the moment. People have been asking for bigger versions to go over to Norway, and... Sounds like they'd be great for halibut. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is for halibut or the cod, but uh, I've given some to one of the chaps who does the din tour, and he should be testing them when he's over there. He might even be testing them now, for all we know, but I'm just waiting for him to give me the thumbs up on them one, and um, I'll probably look at putting them one out there as well, because I'm seeing the price of a lot of these lures that people are getting charged, and it's obscene. The Norway lures, but also a lot of these imported lures that come over, you know, sort of you looking like 15 quid for like six jelly worms. You just think people are getting getting done over big time here or someone somewhere's making an awful lot of money and uh yeah it's all about making money of course but i think the angler needs to get a good deal as well so i was just starting to diversify looking at different markets a bit but also staying true to our roots but as i said we export a lot these days we've got a good export trade on the original lures which we still still made in devon so that's you know another part of the business and we're working with other wholesalers i said in other countries as well developing lures for their markets and colour schemes and things like that so it's very interesting unlike bait lures are always dirt and ready to go can you then foresee a time when plastics might threaten or even take over from the real thing 
It's a difficult one for me to answer that because in other countries it is the case. Pretty much all the big fishing countries, America, Australia, it's much more lure fishing than bait fishing. But I think the UK is a different seasons, of course, especially off the shore. Summer, spring, autumn, it's fine with the lures, but I think bait fishing will always be the main sort of stay for the shore angler, especially because it's a year-round thing. You could always go out all year and, and fish with bait and catch fish, whereas with lures, I suppose in the winter time you could catch pollock and maybe wrasse and things like that on lures in certain parts of the country. And it's definitely growing. It's going to carry on growing. Whether it'll actually take over from bait, I, I, I'm not so sure. Maybe one day, but people have tried with these artificial baits like lugworms and ragworms and things like that, and they just don't seem to catch on. They do take fish, I know that, but I don't think they're... they're you know, I've seen loads of different ones over the years that have come onto the market, and none of them have really, from what I can gather, been that successful. Most of the, the best lures are fished as a lure, where you're trying to impart an action into the lure, so it looks like a bait fish. So, yeah, I can't see it myself. I don't think it will, but there's no doubt that lure fishing is getting more and more popular and more people are doing it. But there's a lot of lures on the market, not just in the UK, but all overseas. And with the world being a much smaller place these days, it's a lot easier to access it. So, yeah, I suppose that's probably part of it. Part of the growth in it really is there's so many different types of lures that are available and different styles and things that people are using in different places. It's, it's always something new going on, yeah. It's nice to see a potential growth sector on the sea angling scene. If I'm honest, certainly on the shore angling side of things, I think it probably has as much to do with mobility and new challenges as anything else, with people potentially venturing into areas of pursuit where the boundaries are still very much an unknown quantity. But for me, this interview has been mainly about the history, particularly as I was on the scene when the popularity of the Redgill first kicked off. My thanks then to Alex for this particular journey. <laughs> <laughs>